news of the historic Supreme Court case where Roe versus Wade and Casey was overturned. Let's give God a praise for that. That's right. As a church, we stand by the sanctity of life from conception until natural death. But what I want to encourage us, this is not a time to gloat. There is that sinful tendency to say, ha, ha, we won. Not a time for that. The hard work that had already begun to make this happen continues on now as we press forward with mercy ministries taking care of young, young mothers, helping them. If we're going to be pro-life, let's be pro-life. Let's praise God for these little victories, but let's dig in and continue the hard work that's already begun, and that's where we stand as a church. So I wanted to bring that to your attention. Amen. If you would open your Bibles to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. I appreciate Pastor Jason reading our passage of Scripture today. You know, and given the recent court cases, you're going to see a lot of talking heads telling you what to do with information. I mean, you'd be living under a rock if you didn't know that we live in an information age. What is an information age? We hear that a lot. That began in the mid-20th century. It really marked a change from traditional industry that was sparked by the Industrial Revolution to an economy that's based more on information technology. It really found its origin in 1947 with the creation of the transistor. And then in 1957, uh, there was something that was called an optical amplifier, which really became the basis of fiber optics. But we've gone from a simple transistor to the internet in a relatively short period of time. And with the internet, we have access to vast amounts of knowledge and information right at our fingertips. I mean, this is the humanist's dream, is it not? The humanist had a manif well, several manifestos, but in humanist manifesto one, two, three, the things that the humanists believed, they declared around the world that mankind's greatest problem was a lack of knowledge. And we just get some more information, some more knowledge, then we would progress as a people, we would evolve as a people, our society would be better. Well, never before has mankind had such access to vast amounts of information. So how's that working for us? Look around, right? We've not progressed as a people. In fact, one could argue that we make the same mistakes or even greater mistakes than our fathers before us. And why is that? Well, God in his word has not called people to great intellect. Now, please don't misunderstand me. God calls us to pursue knowledge, particularly the knowledge of God in his word. He's given us marvelous brains, most of us, marvelous brains, and to be good stewards of the minds that he's given to us, he expects us to fill it with the right things, but God does not call us to great intellect. He does not merely call us to be smart people. No, he calls us to be wise. Whether we are at the pinnacle of the information age with copious amounts of information at our fingertips, or we were a poor farmer living in Canaan in Abraham's day, God has called people to be wise. All throughout the Proverbs, we're commanded to pursue wisdom, to acquire it, to treasure it. Also in the Proverbs, God has called us to surround ourselves with wise people. It's not possible to know everything. There's gaps in what we can do and what we can know. We surround ourselves with wise, godly people. So what is wisdom? In order to do that, in order to pursue wisdom, in order to surround ourselves with wise people, the question remains, what is wisdom? Well, wisdom is not just a question of knowledge. It's not a question of having information at our fingertips. It's a question of knowing how to apply that information in every situation in such a way that it glorifies God. In all things. It's taking the knowledge and using it to glorify God. 
So how do you know if you are wise? How do you know if you merely have a head full of knowledge or you're applying knowledge in a way that glorifies him? How do you know that the people you listen to, people or channels on social media, or talking heads, or podcasts who love to tell you what to think. How do you know that they have God-glorifying wisdom? See, this is a really important point. Everyone is a self-proclaimed expert these days. Everyone has all the answers, right? I like to say. Everyone can editorialize on everything. We live in a sea of opinions. You are constantly told what to do with the information that they have conveniently packaged for you. Well, God commands you to be wise. He commands yourself, commands you to surround yourself with wise people. Can you distinguish between the wise and the unwise? See, one can have the right information, but yet still be unwise. In this passage today, I want to share with you what the Bible gives us as three distinguishing marks of wise Christians. Three distinguishing marks of wise Christians. And we'll begin with James chapter 3 and verse 13. The first distinguishing mark of a wise Christian is this. Wise Christians must authenticate wisdom through conduct. I'll explain. We live in the information age. We're used to authenticating, aren't we? You go to a website, maybe it's your bank portal. You authenticate your identity. How do you do that? Put in your login information. You have a username and you have a password. It is authenticating your identity with this information. Some websites have what they call two-factor authentication. Not only do you put the first factor in, your login information and password, but they'll send you an email or a text with a little code that you could put in that further identifies who you are. And really, its purpose is to authenticate that you are who you claim to be. Well, in this verse, God provides us with a way to authenticate wisdom so you'll know it when you see it, not only in your own life, but in the lives of those who claim to be wise among us. Let's look at verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding. I love that opening. James uses this rhetorical question, who among you? I can see him standing in front of a church. Who among you is wise? Step up. Raise your hand proudly if you consider yourself to be wise. And then on the back of your mind, you're thinking, who would say yes to that? Well, in these days, quite a few people would have done that. Wisdom, especially in Greek Hellenistic culture, was something to be prized and valued. And it was the pinnacle of your existence to say, yes, I am wise. In fact, if you didn't raise your hand to say you were wise, there was something wrong with you. The Greeks actually created this thing, this job. It was called the itinerant philosopher. They would go from town to town, and for a small fee or a generous donation, they would provide you with wisdom so that you can live your life in such a way to have great success, particularly in your financial area. Sounds common, right? We have that today. I'm not just talking about self-help speakers. How about preachers in modern evangelicalism? Come to church where you can learn how to manage your time. Come to church where you can help manage your relationships. But here James is calling out his listeners with something that's solidly rooted in Old Testament terminology. Um, and at this time, he's speaking primarily to a Jewish audience. And so he, and he's almost quoting Hosea chapter 14 and verse 19. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Hosea talks about the blossoming of the vine and the wine of Lebanon. He alludes to figs. If you look at uh, verse 12 of James 3, he talks about figs and olives and vines and, and, and wine. I mean, he's practically quoting Hosea. So who is he speaking to? When he says, who among you is wise? What was he expecting to hear from? Who was he expecting to hear from? Well, verses 1 through 12, he's addressing the leaders of the church, so we could import that into this next section, but I don't really think so. I mean, what is wisdom? Wisdom has to do with a right understanding of God and his word. 
A wise man is more than just a scholar. A scholar has a head full of information. He's, he's a man or a woman that has a right attitude toward God. Being wise doesn't mean we know everything because we have superior knowledge. But we do God-glorifying things as they come up in life. This understanding of wisdom shouldn't be limited to just teachers. So when he says, who among you is wise, he wasn't just talking to, quote, the spiritual elite, the elders or the deacons or some teachers in the church. He was asking each and every one of us, as we read this passage, who is wise. And really, it's interesting because there's a lot of wisdom in the way that he words this question. Because he's really looking for two answers. One who are saying, yep, I'm wise and I want to pursue more wisdom and be faithful with it. Or no, I'm not wise. I need to get some wisdom because he addresses all of this here. But in this passage, he does more than just ask the rhetorical question. He wants to get at a three-factor authentication of how you can tell someone is wise. How you can look in your own life to see if you have godly wisdom that you're walking in godly wisdom, where the people around you that you listen to, you gain information and knowledge, if they are wise. We talked about two-factor authentications with websites. James gives a three-factor authentication of wisdom here in this passage. Let's look. So who among you is wise and understanding? Step up. Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds, and the gentleness of wisdom. He says, let him show. It's an imperative. Demonstrate the wisdom that you claim to have in your life. This is very common for James. All throughout this book, he is predominantly concerned with being identifying who is truly saved, who is not saved, who is wise, who is unwise. Anyone can say that they're saved. Anyone can claim that they are Christians. I mean, Americans claim themselves to be Christians, and if it were true, we wouldn't be in the state that we're in. Anyone could claim to be wise. In fact, most people claim to be wise, or at least they act like it. How do you know if they're really wise or not? He says, let them show. Let it come out. Look at their life, the exterior. That's how you can tell if someone or yourself is walking in true wisdom. And he begins by saying his good Behavior. Isn't that interesting? That's the first factor. Good behavior. Good. What does that mean? Lovely. Winsome. Beautiful. Noble. Excellent. It's a common New Testament word. So he says that if you claim to have divine wisdom, if you claim to have the wisdom of God, then you generally need to show it by your good behavior, by your excellent lifestyle, by your attractive action. True wisdom from God must alter your behavior. It will change your conduct. Anyone who claims to have good wisdom and they live in a way that contradicts how God would want us to live, how to walk in holiness, is not a wise person. That's that first factor of authentication. When we look upon this and we see, all right, is this person, is my own life, am I walking in wisdom? What's my behavior like? Is it good? Is it noble? Is it rooted in scripture? Is it rooted in the faith of Jesus Christ? I guess one of the really good ways that we can determine good behavior is the fruit of the Spirit. Oh, those tough ones, huh? In fact, let's look back. I know we've read this many times before, but it, 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 we can't get it enough repeating in our minds. Turn to Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Look at verse 22. This is the fruit of the Spirit. If we're saved, we're walking in the wisdom of God. The Holy Spirit is sanctifying us. He's causing us to become more like Christ. And things begin to change in us. There is no such thing as a carnal Christian who stays carnal their whole lives. The Bible doesn't make that distinction. 
You're either in the faith or you're not. And if you're in the faith, you're growing and being conformed progressively toward the image of Christ. Everything begins to change about you and your behavior is among them. Look at verse 22 of chapter 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is the good behavior James is talking about. Are we behaving in a manner of love and joy and peace? Does it exude off of us? That's one of those factors that we looked at, we look at when we analyze our own life and say, am I walking in wisdom? Now, when I do say analyze our life, I mean very prayerfully. We have the very unique ability as humans, fallen sinful humans, to think we're all right. Yeah, I'm walking in wisdom. Meanwhile, everyone else is like, you're a wreck. You're an absolute terror. <laughs> but we think we're great. So we need the spirit to do this. That's why it's called the fruit of the spirit. Not the fruit of you. It was the fruit of you. We wouldn't need the Spirit's help. It's something we can conjure up on our own. But we can't do that. It's the fruit of the Spirit within us. So how do we start analyzing whether we're actually walking in wisdom or not? We go to the Word. We open it up. We pour through it prayerfully asking the Spirit, reveal in my heart what needs to be changed. Show me if I'm walking in wisdom or not. Analyze my behavior. Surround yourself with people who are willing to tell you the hard things you don't want to hear. Accountability partners that will ask you hard questions. People that will be willing to say, yeah, you need to work on that. I saw how sharp you were getting with your wife. I saw how frustrated you were when something didn't go your way. Whatever it is, fill in the blank. We need wise, godly people to help point that out to us. We need the spirits leading in this, not only to open our eyes to it, but then to submit to that. Our conduct must be good. That's that factor of authenticating wisdom in our lives, whether we're walking in wisdom or the people around us are wise. The talking heads, the podcasts, the YouTube videos and channels that we listen to, what does their behavior tell you about the wisdom they espouse? Are they easily angered? Are they jumping up and down, foaming at the mouth over things? Or are they calm and gentle, exuding the fruit of the Spirit? Do they encourage you to demonstrate wisdom in this way? we got to keep going. That's the first factor. The second factor of authentication here is, you know, it goes generally to your behavior. It goes to specifically, he says, to let him show by his good behavior, his deeds. So not only will your behavior change by the gospel of Jesus Christ, by godly wisdom, but your actions will change. What you do must necessarily change. So what do you do? How do you live out everyday life are we one way in church and another way the rest of the week or we live consistent lives and so demonstrating so authenticating godly wisdom in our life did you ever have heroes whether they were in society or maybe heroes of the faith pastors that you just were disheartened to see were living a double life they would preach one thing or do one thing, but their deeds smacked of something else completely. Remember that happened to me several times when I was young. It crushed me to see that. And I realized that they don't have godly wisdom. They have a head full of the right information, but they're not walking in wisdom. This is how you authenticate wisdom in your own life. If you're walking in wisdom, are you a changed person? Do you no longer engage in the things that you used to engage in before you came to Christ? And really, that's the entry point to wisdom, isn't it? We come to Christ who is the wisdom of God. 
And that begins our life of wisdom. There must be a change in our life. Now, it's progressive. I get that. And the Spirit is working in our lives. There's not such thing as perfection. As we're growing to Christ, there's going to be little dips along the way. We don't use those dips as justifications. We use them as opportunities to allow the Spirit to continue sanctifying us. We get up, we confess our sins, and we march forward changing our deeds. That's how James is saying that we can determine whether in our own life or in people around us, they really have godly wisdom and therefore worthy of listening to. How do they live? What do they do? The third factor of authentication is that you must demonstrate, he says here, uh, in the gentleness of wisdom. Gentleness. I love how he throws this out here. Have you ever met people who were highly intelligent and knew they were highly intelligent? And they thought they knew everything. What was their attitude? What was their demeanor? Arrogant and sometimes aggressive about it. How dare you question me? No, 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 I'm the expert on this. I know this. They get aggressive about it. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 and 2, uh, Apostle Paul says that knowledge makes arrogant because we're not called to intellect. We're called to wisdom. Now, we need intellect, don't get me wrong, but if that's all we're pursuing is knowledge and intellect, we will become arrogant and conceited in who we are because we have lost sight of the fact that God wants us to glorify him with the knowledge that we have. Knowledge puffs up. Knowledge makes arrogant. And he says here that if you're walking in true wisdom, you'll walk in gentleness. That's a tough one, isn't it? Because there's always that one person that just makes you so frustrated. I mean, and, and they're needling you, and you know it. And you're absolutely right. Your arguments are perfect. You're quoting the right scriptures. You're being impassioned about it, and you're just not making any headway. What do you do? Do you beat them over the head with the truth? That's the tendency of a lot of us. We hammer them with the truth because I'm right. Oh, boy. That's arrogant, isn't it? I'm right. If you have the wisdom of God, yes, you're right. But you'll be gentle about it. You'll be meek. Think of Jesus and his meekness as he was being accused by Pontius Pilate. Didn't even defend himself. Even on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That is not something I could do. I would call those legions of angels and see some carnage going on right over there. <laughs> because I can be arrogant with just knowledge. We don't beat people over the head with the truth. We are gentle with them. We guide people. We're patient. It's that fruit of the spirit that keeps coming back up again, doesn't it? You must authenticate this wisdom in your own life and those who you turn from infor to information and wisdom. But, you know, if you notice, James really doesn't define wisdom here, does he? He doesn't actually say, this is wisdom. It's interesting, because remember, he is speaking to a predominantly Jewish audience. I think he assumes that being good Jews, they would have studied the Proverbs and other wisdom books of the Old Testament. But just for further reading for yourselves, go through Psalm 119. The word of God is the wisdom of God. You will see that again and again. Job 28, verse 28. The what of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord, that reverential fear. That's the very beginning of it. The word of God is the wisdom of God. The gospel is that starting point. Uh, Matthew 7, 24 to 27. Yeah, we have some time. Let's go to Matthew 7, 24 to 27. Jesus talks about this now in the New Testament. Go to 24, uh, Matthew 7, verse 24. Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them. Right there, right in the beginning. Who hears the words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a, what kind of a man? 
a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. The words of his, the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them. Interesting. Let's play off of that a little bit. He who hears the words and does something with it lives their life in accordance with the words that Christ has spoken is the wise one. The foolish one who hears the right information, who hears the words of Christ, doesn't do anything with them. Doesn't live consistently with wisdom. That's that factor of authentication. Now, Jesus is talking about it. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew. It's an insurance adjuster's nightmare. Slammed against the house and it fell. And great was its fall. Again, Jesus is talking about how do you know if these two home builders who are side by side in the same community, who's the wise one? I'm wise. I'm wise. Okay? Show it. Demonstrate it. This one heard God's word and acts on it. This one heard God's word, doesn't act on it, doesn't change their life. This is the wise one. This is the foolish one. Which one are we? Have you heard the words of Christ? Great. It's like James. You believe in God? Good for you. Even the demons believe God. At least they have the good sense to tremble before him. Who are we? Have we heard the word of Christ? Are we walking in that wisdom? Is it demonstrated in our good behavior? Is it demonstrated in our deeds? Is it demonstrated in the change in our attitude where we're now gentle with it and we're not using it as a literal sword against people? See, this is what wisdom is all about. James and even Jesus is concerned with the outward demonstration of the inward reality of wisdom. Are you wise? Remember, God has not called you to be merely smart. He's called you to be wise. So the second mark of a wise Christian is that wise Christians avoid worldly wisdom and its impact. If you are wise, you will avoid worldly wisdom and its impact. You'll know it when you see it. You'll not just avoid it. You'll flee from it because of what James says. So really what James begins here is now a compare and contrast between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. So he started out with the rhetorical question. Here's your three-factor authentication. Let's flesh it out a little bit more. This now is worldly wisdom, and this is why you should avoid it. That's what James is saying. So let's look back at James 3. Starting with verse 14. But if you have, like that but, that's that contrasting conjunction. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie to the, against the truth. This wisdom is not which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. So now he talks about worldly wisdom. This is how you can authenticate it. And he really kind of brings it back to the origin of such things. And he starts with where? The heart. That's what he says, doesn't he? If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart. This is where it flows from. This is where the unwise take their cues and live their life. From something that resides in the heart. And what he says is bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Bitter jealousy. It's an interesting word, especially in the Greek. It's, it's a, a bitter self-centeredness that produces a resentful attitude toward everyone else. It's a me kind of world. Look out for number one. I got to look out for myself because if I don't look out for myself, no one will. 
What a self-centered world. It's a self-formed world that's resentful of anyone who differs from me. Especially those who differ from me and are more successful than me. People who like to watch the world burn. Remember that old line from Batman. Alfred was explaining the Joker to Batman. Batman couldn't understand the motivations of the Joker. And Alfred said, some men just like to watch the world burn. And under a selfish, harsh, bitter self-centeredness, we like to watch the world burn. Why? Because it's not my world that's burning. It's yours. Gloating over the demise of institutions and Christian people with a little snark in our tone, a little bit of glee that's there. That's a bitter jealousy that resides in the heart and is a mark of worldly wisdom. Man, God does not delight in the death of the wicked. He says that in Scripture. On the cross, Father, forgive them. When he rose from the grave, he didn't make a mockery of sinful man. Not a mockery of Satan. He didn't gloat. He didn't have this little glee at the demise of sinful people. Why do we? It's better bitter, bitter jealousy in our hearts. It threatens our accomplishments. It threatens our reputation. It threatens our knowledge and our worldviews. And anyone who differs from me is wrong. This is the sense of this term that, that James is talking about. Now, uh, no one in their right mind, even sinful folks, uh, people that are not in Christ Jesus, would never admit to that, never think of it in terms like that, but it's something that just bubbles up in the way that they behave. And that's what James is doing. He's showing the motivation of where worldly wisdom begins. It begins in the heart, and these things are there within us. He goes on and says, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. It's kind of closely related to bitter jealousy. The goal is my personal fulfillment at all costs. I'm going to pursue it. And what does he say? He says, don't be arrogant. Stop. Which implies that we're checking and putting a guard over our heart to begin with. How do you know if this thing is in your heart if you're not asking the Spirit to show it to you? And man, let me tell you something. It's a frightening thing and a joyful thing when you ask the Holy Spirit to show you the idols of your heart because he will. And you'll probably be surprised at what you see. But it's a cause for rejoicing because that means the Spirit wants to take these things out of your life. Wants you to do that hard work of smashing the idols that only the image of God remains in your heart. That's why James is saying, look at your heart. This is where all of this stuff comes from. It's not just things that you do. It resides within you. And then he goes on and he says... You know, don't be arrogant and so lie against the truth. He's like, stop boasting and your so-called divine biblical wisdom. You don't have it. If you see this is there, you need to stop what you're doing, put on the brakes, and start praying. Look at James 4, just a couple verses later. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts? That's the outward stuff. The source of quarrels and conflicts among you. Is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. He's going this comparing contrast. You envy and can't have, you murder. Always starts in the heart. It always works its way out into the actions every single time. Oh, we can through a little bit of strength, put a lock on some of that stuff. But there will always come a time when our strength will fail us and they will rear their ugly head and you will do things that might even confuse you. Why did I do that? Did you ever do that? I know that happens to me a lot, so maybe it's just me. But I, I, the spirit convicts me and I think, why in the world did I even say that? That's not really how I feel, is it? Holy Spirit, help me. This is where we go through this process of looking. And James wants us to be able to identify it when we see it, to look for it. 
So he says, he, he goes to the motivations. He starts with the heart. And then he wants to show you some of the origins of these things. He says, this wisdom is not which comes down from above, from God. It doesn't come from God, but it's earthly, natural, and demonic. Wow, interesting choice of words. It's in our heart. But what, how did it all begin? It's earthly. It's natural. It's demonic. What does earthly mean? Well, it's of this earth, obviously. Everything that this world produces is self-focused. It has the mark of sin. It reeks of sin upon it. And it sets your eyes off of God. It's of the earth. I'm reminded of what Colossians 3 verses 1 and 2 said. Set your mind on things above. Not on things of the earth. We're died. We've died to the things of the earth. We're now risen with Jesus Christ. We're seated with him, Ephesians says. We're to keep seeking after what's above. The wisdom from above. Not the things of this earth. Worldly wisdom that springs from our heart has an origin in being earthly and bound, cursed by sin. He said it's natural. So he says earthly. He says it's natural. What does that mean? Natural. Could also mean fleshly. I'm reminded also of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural man cannot understand the things of the spirit. They're foolishness to him. They can't be understood because they're spiritually discerned. Wisdom of the world is easy to grab a hold of by natural people. But then he uses this interesting term, demonic. This is the first time in the New Testament, the only time, really, in the New Testament, the word demon is used as an adjective. It's demonic. Remember Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. Actually, let's go back there. Genesis 3, verse 6. Someone asked me not too long ago, he said, you know, when you preach or when you teach, you go to Genesis 3 a lot. Yeah, that's where it all started. <laughs> <laughs> Why we're in the state that we're in, that's where it is. You get this down, you're really going to understand sin and depravity real well. Genesis 3. What was the one rule that God gave mankind? Adam and Eve. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? What do they do? They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Look at verse 6. Chapter 3, verse 6. When the woman saw... That the tree was good for food. That was a delight to the eyes. And that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and ate. That's why it's demonic. Right from the beginning, it is trying to achieve wisdom apart from God and his work. There was one rule, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Trust me that I will guide you to know everything that you should know. Trust me, come to me, I am the fountain of wisdom. You don't need to go to that tree, you come to me. You can have everything else except for that one tree over there. But yet that wasn't good enough. The tempter came and said, the reason why, now I'm doing a little paraphrasing, but I don't think I'm too far off the track here. The reason why God doesn't want you to eat this thing is because he knows you'll be like him, knowing from good and evil that you'll be wise. And God doesn't like competition. So eat it. And she saw that it was good to be wise. This is the origin of worldly wisdom. And so when they ate, mankind fell into sin. The earth as a result, because mankind was the stewardship of the earth over mankind, or over the earth, have dominion over the face of the earth to conform it to God's image and make sure it glorifies him. Because they fell, all of creation fell with them. And we're in this situation that we're in now. Worldly wisdom always leads to death. It's earthly. It's natural. It's demonic. Avoid it. Why? James explains further. If that wasn't enough, James explains further. Verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. So he reiterates those motivations coming from the heart. Jealousy, selfish ambition, where they are, 
there's going to be disorder and every evil thing, instability, chaos, upending the order that God created everything. It can never produce harmony. Worldly wisdom will never produce harmony. It destroys unity. It destroys fellowship. You saw that with Adam and Eve. They hid from each other as well as from God. Do you see that happening in our world around us? Anger, bitterness, lawsuits, violence to get one's way. It's all around us, and it's the mark of worldly wisdom. Its origin is of the earth. It's demonic. It's natural, and it springs from our heart. This is the result of worldly wisdom. This is why we must avoid it. In fact, I would say when you see it, and you see its marks, run as far away from it as you can. Do you see it in your own life? Any of this stuff cropping up, immediately get on your knees. Ask the Lord for forgiveness. Remind yourself of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why we have to put a guard over our hearts because we wrestle with the flesh. And the flesh loves to operate in fleshly wisdom. Put a guard over your heart. Preach the gospel to yourself constantly. Plead with God to progress you in sanctification day by day. Make quick accounts with the Lord Jesus Christ. Flee from it. It will destroy. Remember, it's all about wisdom now. And he's comparing the worldly wisdom from godly wisdom. We're not called to be merely smart. We're called to be wise. So the third mark then of a wise Christian is that they accept godly wisdom as a gift. They accept godly wisdom as a gift from God. See, now we're going to shift focus. He started out with the bad. This is what worldly wisdom looks like. Now we're going to move into godly wisdom. Let's look at verse 17 and 18. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Interesting. See, he started out with the worldly wisdom. He said, these are, these are the motivations. This is where it comes from. And this is its impact. He does the same thing now with godly wisdom. Here is the motivation. He said, it's pure. That's the motivation. I really think it's motivation because purity is something from the heart. True purity, anyway. The word means spiritual integrity, moral sincerity. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but I want to read 1 John 3 in verse 3. Actually, I'm going to back it up a little bit, verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us. Because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet we will be. We know that when he, being Jesus, appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Jesus purifies himself just as he is pure. Godly wisdom is Jesus Christ. Godly wisdom is bound up in the centrality of Jesus Christ. A true believer wants to do God's will because he can't help being in love with Jesus Christ. He meditates upon Christ. And the more he or she meditates upon Jesus Christ, the more they want to be like Jesus Christ, who himself is pure. He hates sin. He quickly confesses their sins before God. We love what God loves. We hate what God hates. We don't have a heart of pride or selfish ambition or bitter jealousy. It's pure as Christ is pure. And John 3 says that everyone who has the hope in the coming of Christ purifies himself. How does one purify themselves? We get down on our knees. Purify my heart. Remember David in Psalms. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That kind of confession, that kind of thing that says, God, I cannot abide 
anything that would disrupt my fellowship with you, anything that would mark an impurity because that's not like Christ and I want to be like Jesus Christ. But it's the mark of a believer. Christ is pure. Have you put your faith in Christ? Have you seen Christ for who he is as the glory of God? as the exegete of God, the one who came down from above to show us who the Father was like, who willingly gave his life. We're going to partake in communion here in a few minutes. We're going to be proclaiming what Christ has done. Put your faith in Christ if you haven't done that. Trust in him. Follow after him. He is the only one who's pure in this world, and we can be in him that's what this godly wisdom is all about. That's why the gospel is the entry point of a life of wisdom for the believer. This is not about getting wisdom. We're in wisdom. It's now us pursuing wisdom and allowing wisdom to affect how we think, how we act, how we behave. He said it's pure. And then he gives us some characteristics. Well, he says it's from above. We know that. That's where it's from. It's from Christ. Christ came uh, to exegete the Father, to tell us who he was like, to give us the word. He is the word. But he says that the characteristic of godly wisdom is that it's peacekeeping. It's peaceable. Blessed are the peacemakers, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said that. Now, what Jesus was not saying in the Beatitudes was, if you want the kingdom of heaven, you better be a peacemaker. That's not what he was saying. That's why we take it and twist it around in our own religion to try to earn our way to God. No, if we are a peacemaker, that demonstrates that the kingdom of heaven resides within us, that we're in it. We're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And that's what godly wisdom is about. That's what it produces, peace, not anxiety, not irritation, not anger, not bitterness, not rage, peace. Do you have peace in your life? Are you walking in the wisdom of God that manifests itself in peaceableness? Being peaceable. The people that are around you, the people that you take information from, the people that you turn to for a little bit of wisdom, do they engender peace in you? Or do they get you all stirred up and angry? They want to rouse you up into a crusade. Some men like to watch the world burn. But the wisdom from God is peaceable. It's gentle. There's that word again, gentle. It's not aggressive. He said it's full of mercy and good fruits. Mercy and good fruits. I mean, isn't mercy the evidence of being saved in the first place? We have been forgiven, therefore we in turn forgive and we extend mercy because God has been greatly merciful to us. I didn't earn this thing. It was earned for me on behalf of Jesus Christ. He extended mercy to someone who did not deserve it. Who doesn't deserve your mercy? That was a trick question. Who doesn't deserve your mercy? If you have the wisdom of God and you're letting the wisdom of God, that godly wisdom, affect your life, you will be a merciful person. You'll extend mercy. You'll be forgiven. Or you will forgive people. Um, that's what it's about. It's reasonable. He says it's reasonable. What does that mean? Teachable. I'm reminded, whenever I see that word reasonable, I always go to Isaiah 1 and verse 18. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins may be scarlet, thou shalt be white as wool. God didn't have to reason with us. God told us what to do. He didn't have to save us in the first place. But even God said, let us reason together. Let's have an agreement. Let's talk things out. Willing to listen. Willing to engage without the impact of worldly wisdom. Do you ever sit down and have a reasonable conversation with someone who disagrees with you? And it's reasonable. It's fruitful. That's evidence of godly wisdom. Pastor Brian gave us that uh, wonderful Wednesday night study on mercy ministries, kind of going back to uh, full of mercy and good fruits. If we're walking in godly wisdom, we're meeting the needs of others, especially people you disagree with. Those are the people you don't want to meet needs for. But wisdom shows that that's what we do. We're compassionate. He says he's, it's a good fruits, unwavering. It doesn't give in. 
I don't want us to read this and say we need to be a pushover of what we believe. That's not what we're saying. We're unwavering in what we believe, but we do so in gentleness. We do so in humility. We do so with mercy and compassion. We don't give back. So that's a mark of it, but we do unwaveringly trusting in Christ and his word without hypocrisy, which means we stand firm in our faith without doing so in a sinful way. So we say, and we're firm in what we believe, but we don't give evidence with our lives of worldly wisdom. We don't take tactics that the world takes when we're proclaiming the truth. We stay in godly wisdom. Are you wise? Are you wise? I mean, God has called you to be wise. God has called you to surround yourself with wise people. Are you wise? Can you tell the difference between the wise and the unwise? That's the important because if we're called to wisdom, we have to know it when we see it. Do you possess the marks of a wise Christian? Do you authenticate it by conduct? Does your conduct show it? Do you see it in the people you surround yourselves with? Do you avoid worldly wisdom when you see it? You just don't go there. You flee from it quickly. Do you accept godly wisdom as a gift? How about the people you turn to counsel? Are they operating in worldly wisdom? Oh, they may have the right information, but are they operating in worldly wisdom or godly wisdom? If they're operating in worldly wisdom, flee. Avoid it. Don't take it into your life. Does it motivate you? Does it cause you to trust Christ more? These are the marks of a wise Christian. This is how you know when you're walking in wisdom. That's God's will for each and every one of you. Let's pray and then we'll move to the Lord's table. Father, I thank you for calling us to wisdom. I thank you, Lord, for giving us the marks of what it means to be wise. You didn't tell us just to be wise and leave us on our own. But instead, you gave us marks to look for. You taught us how to authenticate it in ourselves and in others. You taught us the difference between godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. Lord, help us to be discerning around us, Lord. We have so many opinions in this society that we live in. God, help us to walk wisely in it. May we give you the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen.